this life is a battle and uh, the philosophy that i learned in america is that winners walk and losers winners talk and losers walk and that's the wrong philosophy it's how you play the game that counts so yes i think when when i look at this battle that we are it seems like a hopeless cause i mean the forces that are arrayed against us are so humongous that one feels that like giving up but once you understand that it's not whether you win or lose it's how you play the game that counts then i would like to be on the side of the angels hmm. regardless of whether i go down in the battle that comes Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today is the second part of my two-part conversation with Pakistani PhD economist Asad Zaman. Today, Professor Zaman first talks about what Islamic economics is and how it compares to MMT, and how mainstream economics makes Islamic economics impossible. He then describes why money is not neutral and what the concept of neutrality means. We end by discussing the nature of the necessary revolution in economics as difficult as it will be especially in the United States. We fight not because we will win, but because if we are to have a chance at remaining an organized species and society, then there is no other choice. You will find much more in the description of part 1, but for now, let's get right back to our conversation. discovered you know now you have a realization that economics is is wrong is is fatally flawed and so then you started looking into uh you know when did you discover MMT when did you discover what what you would call islamic uh economics and how do those two things relate to each other but i'd like to move on to when you discovered what real economics really should be like yeah it's it was not that the, there was no one point at which i had a sudden realization that a flash of insight actually it slowly after i started byrock and i started studying uh, and then i got this response from my professor which was from stanford which we never uh, mentioned i i wrote to him and his response was that you know our theory what he shows is that when um, uh, germany uh, set up tariff walls their economy improved so what our theory says is that free trade is best it means that if the germany had not thrown up 
tariff laws, their economy would have improved even further. So this kind of an argument is basically impervious to empirics. And uh, it is always possible because you, you are studying alternative timelines and you can't really uh, say what would have happened. And so if you believe your theory to be 100% true because it's axiomatically a theorem, and that is what, what it was, that his response made clear to me that uh, the theorists don't have an answer. They don't know the history. They're not interested in history. And the theories don't relate to history. And that, that really made uh, clear to me that something is very seriously wrong. And then I started exploring more and more about problems, looking at some heterodox economists. I noticed that you mentioned Fred Lee, but I actually never got to Fred Lee. That was much, much later in my own journey. I, I, I went in different directions. But uh, slowly, uh, problems and puzzles began to accumulate. And um, until it came to a point where um, I realized that there's so much wrong that could it be that it is really all wrong? That question came to my mind and I said, no, I must be crazy. It can't be true that, you know, what they're teaching at Harvard and Stanford and all over the world to hundreds of thousands of students. It can't be all wrong. I must be have made some mistake. Yeah, sure, there are errors here, there, and, but, but the whole thing, the whole foundation is wrong. I um, came to the edge and then I backed away from it many, many times. And then it just, uh, the evidence mounted so much that ultimately I took the plunge. And when, uh, is there a specific year that you're, that this happened? I would say that, yes, this was um, in the um, 2004 or five. So, yeah, I remember, yeah, I think the occasion in which this crystallized was when there was a, DFID project. Uh, this is a British uh, organization. I was at that time in Islamabad in uh, the International Islamic University. And there was a project on um, religion and development uh, done at Birmingham. So I, I was there as a participant and we were discussing and I realized how, um, how the conventional treatment was so uh, far off in terms of understanding religion and meaning of life that um, what was being said in defense of the conventional theories at those places. Basically, the conventional theory is, of course, that religion is an obstacle to development because um, it's a vestige of superstition and... and um, traditional thought, which prevents uh, access to modern thought. And basically... And, and actually, 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 religion is caring about other people to an extent, <laughs> yes. which, isn't, which is an obstacle. realization that I came to much later, that basically religion says that we are all brothers and sisters, and that these bonds of humanity which tie us together are far stronger than anything which can divide us, whether it's language or race or, or creed or nationality. And the Quran more or less explicitly says this, 
that you are all children of Adam and Eve and that you are uh, the same as each other and equal to each other. And these divisions among you are superficial, the, the colors and, and other divisions. So this is, this is the a deep insight of religion, which is uh, very important. And not, uh, and if you look at international trade theory, it doesn't take on board this insight. So, um, yeah, in the in this meeting, uh, it became clear to me that the position that I had come to was very distinct and different from the conventional position. So um, from then, I started to develop. So once I got freed of this, basically. What, uh, throughout my life, I have found that it is the un unlearning which is far more difficult than developing new theories. It's, it's uh, what blocks us from understanding is not that the new ideas are difficult. It is the old ideas which prevent us from thinking these ideas. And I found since that this insight has been expressed by many, many uh, people, including Keynes in his introduction. He writes something more or less exactly that to this effect that uh, it is not that the new ideas I present are difficult. It is just the old ideas which which keep us trapped into certain frames of thinking that that make make it difficult to understand these new ideas. Yeah, Keynes expresses this insight several times in several different ways in his uh, introduction and introductory chapters that the uh, economists resemble Euclidean geometers who walk into a non-Euclidean world and because the lines keep running into each other, uh, they uh, abuse the lines instead of revising their axioms and mm. many other things like this. Wow. Okay, so so 2004 around, you started looking for new economics, for a real economics. And you, right. you, so what did you finally end up settling on? When did MMT come to the picture? When did Islamic economics come to the picture? MMT when is a very, very uh, recent yeah, phenomena. I, I was very doubtful about MMT until about 2017 when I decided that it's very intriguing and I, I took a, the only textbook at the time on MMT and I decided to teach it so that I would learn it. So uh, after going through it, I realized that it all made sense and hung together and was a very important uh, uh, set of insights about how our economic system works and in particular about how money works. And it's really amazing, astonishing, astounding that economists don't understand money. It's, it's really any mind boggling. Even now people are teaching the, a concept which is called the neutrality of money. The real business cycle models, which are uh, mainstream macro, and nearly all of the macro theories that I know, and there are nine different schools of thought as far as I know, all of them have the idea that money is neutral. What that means is that if you double the amount of money in the economy, the prices will double. And nothing else will happen. So money does not have any effect on the real economy. So this is called wow. the classical dichotomy. Money operates in a separate realm and the real economy operates separately. And the two really don't have any much to do with each other. 
Wow. Okay. This is completely uh, any, the stupidest thing ever. And <laughs> Keynes explicitly wrote that money is not neutral in the short run and the long run. But like many other insights of Keynes, this was neutralized and dismissed and uh, trivialized and uh, adapted to um, a sort of uh, what, what was called by Joan Robinson, bastardized Keynesianism. Mm. Can you can you elaborate or can you connect the ideas of money is neutral, that money has no effect on the real economy uh, to the idea that money in in mainstream economics, that money is only a lubrication of the barter system? Yes, these two ideas are very closely connected. One of uh, there are many ways to explain this. One of the ways that I found most insightful was the uh, Marxist formulation that um, in a, in an economy of the type that economists consider, it's a it's a barter economy where basically the goal of life is to uh, acquire commodities and to consume them. So he says that this can be represented in a formula CMC prime, which means that everybody starts out with commodities and then uh, they use these commodities to either exchange or to manufacture more commodities. They sell these commodities for money, but the money is only an intermediate good. They get the money and they use that money to purchase other commodities. So basically money comes in the middle, but it disappears at the end because money is not your goal. It's just an intermediate good. And this is a, basically the idea at the heart of all current macroeconomic models. That money is nothing more than a tool to get more stuff, physical stuff. Yes, exactly. You sell your commodities for money and then you use that money to buy other commodities. So it's an intermediate good. It is not a final good. As opposed to this, he said, uh, Marx said that the real economy works on the MCM prime principle. You start with money, use that money to manufacture commodities, and then you sell them to make even more money. So it's all about money. Commodities just enter the picture in a in a in, in a in a peripheral way. So this is an so, entirely radically different way of thinking about the economy, and that is the true picture in which money is the heart of the economy. You can't ignore it because it's all about money. But um, according to economic so, theory, it's all about commodities. So let me ask again: Can can you just clarify or repeat or whatever? that the, the connection of how that means that money is neutral, that it, money does not affect the real economy. Well, you see, suppose we have the CMC prime model that basically it's all about money. You see, uh, economics starts with the position that the goal of our lives is to consume commodities. And basically, Everything we do, all our economic activity is focused on the consumption of commodities and everybody is like that. So then money just facilitates barter, but it's not necessary in the sense that we could just open up books, accounting books in which we keep keep track of the, okay, I owe you X and you owe me Y. And as long as we keep track, eventually it will all resolved. So there's no real role for money. It's all about commodities. So in that economy, money is just a, a, a lubricant. It facilitates barter. 
but it's not essential. Is that clear? Uh, well, then let me ask the opposite question, and I wonder if it's. I wonder what the answer will be to this. How? Give me an example of how money is not neutral in our in the real economy, in the truthful economy. Now, this is really really fascinating because it's uh, something that's so simple, so basic that um, I was so shocked and surprised when I uh, considered a model and uh, in which there was real money and found that things don't function. This is, in fact, uh, to understand, this is very useful to understand modern monetary theory as well. Okay, so uh, think of um, a thought experiment. This is a little bit technical, but so think of an isolated economy which runs only for one period. Uh, I am a, I and there are some other producers. We have some money. What we do is we hire some laborers and we pay them wages. We buy some resources like timber and seeds, etc. And we manufacture some goods. So this is the first part of the period where we are producing things. And so now all our goods are produced and ready to sell. And so now we go out and sell these goods. So now uh, suppose this is a closed and isolated economy. There's no, no foreigners, no government, nothing. It's just the few of us, the capitalists and the laborers. So now when we start uh, put our goods for sale, what, how can we make profits? when we sell them hmm. well in order to make profits somebody must come in and buy them for the money but the only money in the economy is the hmm. money that we have spent into it hmm. because i paid the laborers wages and i purchased a resource these these people were poor let's assume they have zero money it doesn't really matter if they have some to begin with i mean the, the argument doesn't change but so this is all the money that is available to buy the goods. So suppose that they buy everything that we have uh, produced. What will happen? Uh, I will get back exactly the same amount of money that I spent, meaning that I will have zero profits. Mm -hmm. There's no way to make a profit in this economy unless there is one thing that, yes, they have some money to start with. They can spend that. That would mean that the savings of the household sector would go down. Mm -hmm. to the extent that our profits rise. You can only profit by someone else suffering. Exactly, exactly. There is no way to make more than zero profits. Now, what MMT tells us is the solution is deficit spending by the government. Suppose the government mm -hmm. just provides uh, $100 each to each of the laborers as a gift. Now, this is extra money that comes into the economy this will turn into profits for the businesses. And so basically you can't make profits there uh, except when money is injected. And there are basically two sources of injections, actually three sources, but um, uh, the two main sources are the uh, government injects money by deficit spending, or you can make money by trade. If you uh, export more than you import. When you export more than you import, then the foreigners spend money into your economy. You get excess money and that can create profits. 
So profits can only come from um, injections of money into the economy. Otherwise, there's no way to make profits. Hmm. Well, let me ask, I, I understand all of that. I'm still not clear on how that, what like maybe it's the definition of the word neutral. Hmm. What is not neutral about that? Uh, you see, basically, money drives the economy. Uh, okay. The injections of new money is the only thing that makes it possible for people to not suffer. That's a real exactly. world consequence exactly. of money. Okay. Exactly. Right. That, make, that makes perfect sense. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, okay. Two more questions and then let's just move on to uh, your, the, you know, the revolution. <laughs> to, no, I'm going to give you both questions at once. You can answer it however you choose. Number one is, can you compare MMT to Islamic, uh, Islamic economics? And then number two, can you just briefly talk about your most recent paper, the one uh, Kant, the realization of Kant uh, regarding how models are so flawed because of uh, putting together Friedman's idea in the 1950s that he said, you know, the assumptions don't matter. And I love your analogy of, of a, you know, a, a heavenly sphere around the earth that the moon is painted on. Mm. Uh, that, I think that's a really good, you know, that's an assumption that could be a, a crazy assumption, but maybe the moon looks, you know, come the predictions come out right, even though the assumption's crazy. And how uh, the, the Kant idea of actual truth, which is impossible to truly understand. Okay. And then let's move on to the uh, what needs to happen. As far as um, MMT to Islam is concerned, um, MMT is just one dimension of the change that we need to make in our macro theories. It, it tells us a lot about what money is, how it should be created properly, and uh, how to make sure that the harmful effects of money creation can be neutralized and the beneficial effects can be uh, taken advantage of. Uh, it, it provides uh, deep insights into that. But the economy consists of a lot more than money. And so, um, in fact, all three dimensions, how to make human lives meaningful, how to make the economic sphere a part of our lives, but not the dominant part. It should not be the goal of human life to be making money or to be spending time on economic pursuits. We are meant to be much more than that. To be human involves... Um, yani, uh, to be fully human, the uh, capabilities that we have given are not for sale in the marketplace, the, the most important capabilities. So Islam deals with uh, the political, the economic, the social, the individual, the spiritual, and all dimensions of life. So that is uh, that's, uh, how I would compare MMT to Islamic economics. As far as the second question, uh, question uh, you're before asking. before the second question, if I may, I want to follow up on that, which is, as I at my you know very limited understanding is, it seems to me that mainstream economics makes Islamic economics impossible. MMT is a tool that makes Islamic economics possible because it's not it's it's a, it's a piece, but it's not a restrictive piece. It's a tool that can be used to implement Islamic economics. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's very insightful. Very insightful remark. You are right. Um, 
the neoclassical economics takes uh, uh, commitments and and stances which are diametrically opposed to islam you can't have uh, one or the other i mean when you say that the purpose of life is to maximize consumption you're already uh, you're already in conflict with islamic views on the meaning of life mmt um, uh, delineates one sphere and also takes a, a much more reasonable stance about uh, the other dimensions leaving them open for uh, investigation or exploration by other means so yes you are absolutely right mmt creates a space in which one could apply islamic teachings whereas uh, the standard conventional economic theory does not have any space of that sort at all great thank you so uh, to go on to the next question it's it's the german philosopher uh, kant who is uh, who i hold as culprit much to the discomfort and embarrassment of philosophers because um, kant is actually um, one of the major um, towering figures in western philosophy and basically uh, he changed everything um, before kant philosophy was along uh, moving along different lines and after him along different lines and he is so difficult to read that nobody really can understand what he has said it takes uh, multiple levels of interpretation so what i have done is not really and i have i've tried to disassociate myself from kant as such a basically what happens is that we take uh, abstract and complex philosophies and translate them into simple common sense ideas and we are far more influenced and this is another one of keynes insights that dead uh, philosophers rule the world to a far greater extent than we realize their ideas dictate the passions of madmen and policy makers who think they are completely free of such influences anyway so the point is that one of the really difficult and abstract um, philosophies of kant was that there is such a thing as thing in itself the rea- the external reality but this is not accessible to us except through observation this is a perfectly sensible idea this is how uh, positivism was sold to me that okay yes i don't deny that there is lots of things in uh, reality that are unobservable yes uh, maybe i have a soul uh, maybe you have a soul but uh, if i can't observe it then it doesn't matter it must uh, make some impact on reality that i can see in order for it to have any interaction with my life and you're so, expressing kant's kant's idea right now yeah exactly well this idea is uh, not just kant it's also hume it's also logical positivism this this is a common across a large number of philosophers but kant provided a, a sort of a very strong solid intellectual foundation which i think uh, sealed it uh, and strengthened it much more but other philosophers would disagree with me on this so yeah so i don't think i mean uh, kant is useful as a 
focus point. Uh, it's just um, we are taking a very uh, complex history and we are trying to um, history of ideas. How did it come to pass that um, economics is so completely crazy? You see, uh, once I came to the realization that economics is completely crazy, that actually if uh, somebody goes to get a PhD at Harvard uh, in economics, instead of learning uh, about how the real world works, he actually becomes blind to how the real economy works. So this is an idea I've expressed at several points that instead of giving you insight into the economy, it actually makes it impossible for you to see how the world works. So then this creates a real puzzle, an intellectual puzzle, which is something which I have spent a lot of time on. And that's what this models and reality paper is about. How can it be that a system of production of knowledge, which produces such bad theories, which are diametrically in conflict with observed realities, how can such a system persist? Surely there should be a self-correction. Surely people would come up with theories and say, oh, this doesn't work, let's, let's repair it. This self-correction tendency is not present. People have these drastically bad theories and they uh, keep uh, patching them up. But the fundamental flaw at the heart of it, nobody notices and nobody worries about. So the, uh, this is something that is important to understand. We can't get the answers by looking at a theory and saying why it is wrong and why it is right. Looking at theory X and theory Y and comparing them, giving evidence for one theory and giving evidence against the other. Uh, we have to operate at the meta-theoretical level. You have to go one step above this uh, battle of ideas. We have to look at the history of ideas. How did these ideas come into existence? How did this theory who was the first one to propose this theory? How was this theory used? So now we are looking um, from above the fray. We're not involved in the battle to determine whether um, this theory is right or wrong. And in fact, this is another one of the very deeply wrong ideas that I was taught in the MIT and Stanford, and that is binary logic, <clears throat> that given an idea, Either it's true or false. And if it's true, then you should just take it. And if it's false, then you should reject it. This is completely false. Ideas are much more complex things than um, which cannot be fitted into these binary cages. Uh, they have power and many ideas. You cannot evaluate on these dimensions of truth or falsehood. Uh, most of the ideas that we have in our lives should I uh, marry X? Uh, should I get treatment uh, Y for my uh, health problems? What kind of lifestyle I should choose? These kinds of things don't have answers in terms of binaries. They are far more complex. So similarly, these uh, binaries, they, they, they create wrong ways of thinking about the world and wrong ways of thinking about theories. So, to, to rise above this, you need to 
think about ideas without evaluating them for truth or falsehood. You have to see how ideas developed. In that case, in this sense, I think Michel Foucault's ideas on the archaeology of knowledge, these are extremely valuable. In my own intellectual journey, I have found it much more insightful to examine the emergence of an idea without thinking about whether it's true or false. Who was the first one to propose it? Which group interests did it support? Which group uh, opposed this idea? Why did this idea emerge victorious against the others which were there in the battlefield? And this doesn't have to do with truth or falsity. It has to do with the political power of the group which, uh, which is supporting this idea and so on. So studying the history of ideas has been extremely uh, useful to me in terms of uh, disentangling the different streams of thought and uh, leading to the understanding of why this new classical theory, theory takes the shape it does and why it has this power to persist despite being manifestly and obviously wrong and demonstrably so. So this puzzle, this puzzle of how really, really wrong, it's like, you know, uh, flat earth is being taught at Harvard. And this is exactly true. Uh, that the economist theories being taught at Harvard are just like flat earth theories. They are dramatically uh, contradicted by empirical evidence. Anyone who looks his, uh, lifts his head and looks at the world around will see that these theories are false. So how can such dramatically bad theories continue to be taught? This is a real puzzle. And I have made some uh, discussion about how this how this state of affairs came about that is that is what is in the models and reality paper really wow um okay and uh, i mean you said yourself on the interview which is at the top of your i think about me page um that you say the economics that we currently have is to keep i don't remember the exact phrasing of it but is to keep the powerful powerful to keep the rich rich yes definitely this is true but uh, it shouldn't be um, taken as a trivial matter in the sense that uh, there are many other theories which could do the job. This, in order for um, a theory to work, to keep the, yeah, yes, definitely this is a very important element in understanding why these theories persist, even though this, they are so flawed. But there has to be more to that uh, one has to create theories which are um, acceptable according to methodologies which are um, used for evaluating knowledge. So these methodologies have to be sufficiently corrupt, which they are, to allow mistakes to persist. So, What's the, uh, what's the nature of that corruption? Yes. Uh, basically, it's a wrong theory of knowledge created by logical positivism, which, which misdefines knowledge. And uh, by misdefining knowledge, it prevents us from the tools that we need to evaluate uh, claims empirically and to modify them when we find them wanting. Because it, uh, to, to put it in a very trivial way, sort of trivialize it, but to simplify, to explain it, 
See, there are two modes of uh, approaching knowledge. One is the geometry mode, which is axiomatic, which is Euclidean geometry. You put down some axioms and then you start deriving theorems. And so those theorems are your knowledge. And this is all certain knowledge. So this is called the deductive mode. Then there's the inductive mode. You look at the world around you and you look at the, uh, you look, you try to derive some rules or some understanding from the experience that you have. So basically, positivism ruled out the inductive mode of learning. And it, uh, it said that knowledge is only axiomatic. And so that meant that the um, economists built their um, theory of knowledge on an axiomatic base. They said we'll start with firm, sure assumptions which are indubitable. And then we will derive our theorems using logic. So there is no chance for any error to creep in. And there's no need for cross-checking against uh, any reality because we started with things which were certain, 100%, and then we used logic, which can't be wrong. So the conclusions that we read are certain and they don't need to be cross-checked against the world. Just like when you prove the Pythagorean theorem, you don't cross-check it by drawing a rectangle, by drawing a triangle and measuring its sides and seeing if the sum of the squares equals the square of the hypotenuse. So this methodology, the axiomatic methodology, well, this is the problem. So if you find a mismatch, then you just modify your axioms, but you don't modify the methodology. And uh, that way you will never make progress. So basically the issue is to switch from this pre-scientific axiomatic methodology, which was abandoned by Ibn al-Haysam in one, uh, the year 1000, you see, in, um, this is a very interesting episode. There was a huge battle between two schools of philosophical thought. One school of thought said that the light, uh, how do we see? So one of the thoughts said that the light comes from eyes and strikes the object. The other school of thought said that the light comes from the object and strikes, strikes our eyes. Both of the sides had long books and arguments both of them built axiomatic proofs for their ideas and the controversy remained, remained unresolved for centuries because they were using the wrong methodology. Then mm -hmm. Ibn al-Haysam came up with the empirical methodology. He said, let's, instead of creating axioms, let's look at what really happens when we see what happens when I look at the sun, it burns my eye and mm -hmm. so on. Uh, he, he took a, a large number of observations of the real world and he said these are all consistent with the idea that the light comes from the object and hits the eye and not consistent with the idea that light comes from our eyes and hits the object. Oh, wow. Basically this is the point that there is an axiomatic method which is pre-scientific and there is the indu inductive method which is based on observations and economists are stuck with this pre-scientific method and furthermore they think that this is the scientific method. So this double set of confusions that they are using a pre-scientific methodology, but they think that this is the scientific method just makes it very difficult to fix problems. You use the word corruption though, well, that implies deliberate negative intent. So where is that? <laughs> yes, I think that the, you can find that um, demonstrated in many different episodes in history where there were competing schools of thought and the school of thought that was in support of um, the rich capitalists was given huge amounts of funding while the 
other schools were uh, deprived of funding and their professors were kicked out one of the most interesting episodes is the founding of the nobel prize in economics hmm. which was uh, which is not really a genuine nobel in the sense that it was not created by the nobel family it was created by the swiss bank and named as the swiss bank prize in memory of alfred nobel right actually i happen to know that nobel himself and his family his descendants did not want that to be the case exactly but everybody that. thinks uh, and that was the intention that it was the nobel prize and see at, at the time it was created the reputation of the chicago school was really low it was considered as crackpots when i was actually going through graduate school we were told that this chicago school is a group of crackpots but then uh, they started receiving every other no- nobel prize went to the chicago school yeah. and then they suddenly their star rose in the uh, intellectual world and um, nowadays they are mainstream and anybody who disagrees with them is considered a crackpot so well not so coincidentally there was a a a chicago school survey of mnt where the questions were so misleading that every single economist that answered this said that mnt was horrible Uh, this the survey from the chicago school that was released <laughs> earlier this year um okay okay so the revolution what needs to happen what needs to change because as uh, this is not just about teaching people the correct economics this is much much more than that you know i mean i mean you know human civilization depends on this happening you know in the not so distant future yeah in you know it's not an exaggeration you are right and so so i'd like you to talk about what this revolution needs to be what is what it really means you know and also my you know my my podcast is called activist mmt it is intended for people who are lay people who are you know learning mmt as best as they can but they're not formally educated what do what can people like myself and my listeners actually do to become part of that to make that change all right this is a very important question which i have been pondering for uh decades as to what are the changes that need to be made and how to make them my own uh, attempts at um, you know i tried to publish some dissenting articles concealing my hand in the main journals by yani taking a sympathetic uh neoclassical view and saying well oh, all of it is fine but there's one little problem here but they weren't having any of it <laughs> so none of this got published and i eventually i realized that ran these consciousness raising workshops uh, and i thought it was really silly to i- insist on so much on uh linguistic niceties and things like don't open doors for women and so on but i realized that it did have a major effect so i have um, i think that yeah using the right words is important part of the battle because the words we use shape the world that we see but anyway so what i came to the conclusion was that yes this message can easily be sold to the masses of uh the poor countries whose interests are not aligned with capitalism and i found this to be so true i can say anything at all against economics in the hinterland 
but if i was to give this lecture at um, harvard or princeton and yale and i have given lectures at those places uh i would just not be able to do it so they would uh, boo me out of the halls <laughs> far much before i could say uh complete anything and i've seen this happen i mean duncan foley gave a lecture on sort of a mild deviation from from orthodoxy and basically one student graduate student got up and called him in uh, uh, crazy in uh, not so uh, so straightforward language so basically a deviation is not allowed in the mainstream so i think that uh, for me personally i'm saying me personally because a lot of my audience in this will be people who are living in the heartland in usa and in europe so uh this is not very helpful for them to say that you can't but i think basically the point that i want to make is that uh you can't tangle with the economists but there is a you have to create rainbow coalitions people whose economic interests are being hurt by the system and that's 90% the bottom 90% but to get them to unite uh basically again this is a standard tactic from machiavelli that distract the people show them a false enemy instill fear into their hearts so right now i just yesterday i saw this campaign by trump campaign ad that you know what uh, biden wants he wants to give 11 million citizen uh, people immigrant citizenship and they will be competing for your jobs and they will be lowering your wages so basically the enemy is the immigrants so that's really <laughs> yani he he doesn't obviously he doesn't want to show that the enemies are of you are the billionaires like me and so he's distracting them from and keeping them from seeing the real enemy it, it, it's it's actually they, if I, I'd, um, i'd like to add on to that i'd like to add on to that which is two things number one <clears throat> is the idea that the immigrants are coming to steal your job what if they go into the job interview and the boss they put a gun to the boss's head and say you will hire me or what no it's the boss who is choosing to hire them instead of an american uh and number 2 is that wouldn't work nearly as well unless there was false scarcity yes you are right actually one of the it has become very easy to argue for mmt nowadays because you know the uh in fact that you can mail a check for 1200 dollars to everyone in the country without uh, asking where are we going to raise the taxes for this clearly shows that the government has control of money creation and that's really basically one of the central assertions of mmt that the government does not need to balance budgets mhm yani one of the things uh, the the book by atif mia and amir sufi called house of debt is very interesting and very important in its analysis of the global financial crisis it says that uh, Uh, trillions of dollars somebody else has estimated about 30 trillion dollars were spent in bailing out financial institutions all over the world the richest of the rich and whereas a much much smaller um, part of this uh, money could have been uh, given to the mortgagers who were failing to pay their mortgages and that would not only have prevented the crisis it would have prevented the global recession that followed the mm. great recession that followed 
So why was the bailout given to the uh, banks and the financial institutions which had caused the crisis deliberately instead of the people who were hurt by it? It's like, you know, if somebody stabs you in the back and the doctor applies the medicine to the knife instead mm. of to the wound. Mm. So wow. this is exactly what happened. And um, the lobby, the financial lobby was very aware that there would be a, a strong uh, pressure to bail out the mortgages. And so they developed campaigns saying, do you want to pay for somebody else's loans, mm. uh, an irresponsible person? Just wow. like the famous, um, you know, welfare queens, which who were invented to get people to dislike welfare payments. Right. Even though one can provide, and if you just compare the USA with Canada or with Europe, you find how miserable uh, the social security system of the US is compared to anywhere else in the real world. Right. Okay. So the so the the revolution, the necessary revolution that's that's required here. Yes. Well, as I said, I have been working in a different field uh, using different tools and weapons. And I think that the revolution uh, work that is required for the heartland, USA and Europe, would take different lines. Even in USA and in Europe, it would take different lines. So one of the things is that you can't tangle with the economists. So you have to develop alternative institutions, basically, uh, the way um, that work is sustained is by creating institutions. Now, what I am working on is trying to create an alternative theory. And I am um, quite certain that this will never get taught in the USA, at least in the next two decades. But I think that once it gets starts getting taught in the poorer countries of the world, then its uh, intellectual superiority will become obvious and that will cause some fallback they will find ways and they are already working on ways to patch up economic theory to deal with uh, mmt and and other heterodoxies uh, i've seen some of the work that's going on in inet institute for new economic thinking and others where they are admitting to major problems in the economic theory framework and taking in just what is needed to um, fix the theory without hurting the interests of the capitalists. <laughs> it's a br brilliant job. So they're working hard to prevent uh, theories which upset the apple cart from coming in. And they're already planning that, yes, even if they come in there, they are developing containment strategies. So it's pretty sophisticated. Mm -hmm. I really don't know what I would do if I was in the USA because uh, they've got the ball game sealed up so tight that uh, I'm just happy I don't have to play that game. But uh, for <laughs> those people there, I, I, I'm not being very helpful. Uh, I would have to think a lot more on how to launch the revolution in the USA. But um, in the rest of the world, it's free. We are, we are uh, as long as we don't intrude on the, we don't step on their toes, we don't talk about that's also one thing that I don't um, want to make financial reforms too quickly because that will ring the bells. I want to make reforms in other dimensions which are not so sensitive. 
and uh, and build uh, slowly the institutional framework that is needed to sustain reforms <laughs> you see no one person can do anything and no one idea can do it it can change things to to empower an idea you have to build an institution which represents the idea so what are some of the ideas we need a rainbow coalition we need something you see the labor unions for example they are they are great but uh, they have been basically emasculated because they come into conflict with capitalism and basically it's things like this how do you give power to the people uh, when there is active struggle taking place to prevent this from happening how do you create a health system which covers everybody we just saw what happened to that and so you see these are the kind of things i mean i think that to create a universal health care for usa along the lines of canada and england and europe that is that should be the goal that may be uh, how to do it i really think that some local strategists need to think better about what needs to be done here because i'm not so up on the political system and where you can tweak it and where you can uh, where there are there's room to uh, push through but yani if you can't do things like banning guns and creating getting universal healthcare then um, i don't think there is any hope for more radical things like mmt mm. although mmt is part of the solution in the sense that mmt tells us that there is no issue of where will we get the funds for uh, providing universal healthcare so that is certainly true so if there was more public awareness of this that then they could uh, rebut some of the arguments made by the other side but really i am sorry that i cannot help you too much on uh, this issue of how to launch the revolution uh-huh. in the usa uh, <laughs> well actually I'm, actually I'm, i mean the, the the people that are most affected by these issues by healthcare by the the people who are that are most disadvantaged are those who are shut out of the voting system who are put into jail and therefore they're not in the unemployment a lot of those people who are hurt by these are the ones who are voting for trump so <laughs> that's well, I, well, i'm sure i'm sure that's true as well but but i think that there's a lot of you know those are not the people that we would go and and the, they're probably not quite as open minded as those who have been disaffected and that are shut out of the voting system that don't want to vote that you know i mean i i had i I'm just learning about unemployment statistics where, you know, people in the it, uh de facto racism which puts which puts black people in jail because of drugs, they're not they don't count as existing in the unemployment statistics. So so exactly. you know, the, the official unemployment statistics, you know, we're so good with un, with employment right now, you know, but but we're not counting anyone in the military or in jail or you know that don't have a phone or that are homeless and it's like you know so those people who have are the most most negatively affected the disadvantaged communities are the ones who are being ignored in statistics who are being shut out of the voting booth and hopefully you know we're not going to i don't think we're going to that this through electoral politics i think that's pretty clear but you know those are the people that potentially might be interested in realizing that you know better is better is possible <laughs> and hopefully Yeah uh, this is one of the things that i've seen there are two things i want to respond to you one is the you mentioned jails and this documentary called the 13th amendment is really amazing yeah i was yeah. shocked and hor- horrified by it and it's really worth watching 
Uh, it has something to do with Black Lives Matter as well. But sure. anyway, that's um, a separate. It's not really separate. The the one of the strong um, tools of the rich. You see, the one percent. How can the one percent control the bottom ninety percent? They can do so only if they keep them divided. So keep the blacks fighting the whites and keep the immigrants fighting the and and um, and make as many divisions as you can and just um, keep them fighting each other so they don't realize who their common enemy is. And so that's uh, so countering this propaganda and creating um, harmony and creating a realization of common common interests economic social political all of them is very important but uh, i think that the enemy knows that better than us and so mm. they are actively working to disrupt any efforts at creating this harmony and peace and love which we need so we need to 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 create something which lasts we need to build institutions which will promote community and uh, welfare and caring for each other but how to put these together in a way that is robust and resilient and will attract people especially when the see going back to what karl marx said when the laborer is a willing accomplice to his own enslavement mm. and how are you going to free him it's the it's the dilemma of matrix that uh, if you take a person and you free him from this matrix world he is not very happy he was mm. very happy living within his within his uh uh dream world. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point and and actually it's not it, it, and this all relates back to what we've been talking about. We don't just want to go out and teach people MMT, we need to just get to know those people. Because if we just go out and teach people MMT, they're not going to be as open-minded to learning that thing if we don't have a connection with them somehow. So it's not, yes, you know, yes, this, I so think the, that MMT by itself should not be taught as a theory. You should say that MMT is a liberating um, ideology which teaches us how we can finance uh, healthcare for all and jobs for all. That's really the the job guarantee program. That's really any uh, MMT is a theory. You need to focus on what it will deliver to the people. So I think the job guarantee program. This is really the the best uh, policy. I mean, um, healthcare for all, job guarantee program. Some of the things that you can get out of MMT, which are policies which everybody would favor. These are the things to focus on hmm. as selling points and as uh, creating institutions to try to achieve these. That's a good point. And uh, and actually, I think the job guarantee is going to be absolutely critical because as we have start to have mass migration because of climate change over the next few decades or however many decades. If those immigrants come in and there's a wall and people are like immigrants are stealing my job, that's going to be pretty bad. But if there is a job guarantee and everybody by definition can get a job, that will greatly, I think that could potentially save us. You know, that could be one of the huge elements that could save us because everyone could get a job and there would be no fear of, you know, this, this ridiculous fear of the immigrants coming to take them because there's going to be mass migration in the not so distant future. And those people who are migrating are going to be, you know, not Americans or Europeans, white Europeans, you know. Right. So I think that we should focus on the positive because uh, the public is not going to 
be interested in arcane debates on economic theory, but they will be interested in the job guarantee program. And the MMT shows that this is possible, whereas conventional theory says that it's not necessary because the capitalism will automatically provide jobs for everyone. Despite, and this is again an amazing thing, that how can economists continue to say, and they do, even the latest texts in uh, economics, labor economics say that everyone will automatically get a job at the going price, even though this manifestly false. So anyway, the um, MMT shows us that you can create job guarantee. You can give everyone who wants to work a job. And this is something which modern economics does not say. So that's one of the major contributions, which is of burning importance to the people. Right. Ooh, okay. Um, how about we close with, uh, can you say, can you talk about how you think MMT could assist your home country of Pakistan? Yeah, I have given a long lecture on that and how it needs to be adapted. MMT is not a, not a magic tool. It has to be creatively adapted. to. It, it, it gives you an idea of the kinds of things that can be done once you understand that money creation is possible, but it's not a magic tool. And there are many, many other things that need to be done in conjunction with MMT to make sure that it works uh, correctly and uh, fruitfully for everyone. Yeah, well, basically, um, there are some major uh, big prescriptions of MMT that don't take debt in foreign currencies and um, that use the government deficit. Well, basically, MMT argues that we should take away the uh, power of money creation from uh, private banks and give it to the government. Uh, but the problem is when governments are also corrupt and under the influence, and this is also true in the USA, where the government is actually uh, under the influence of the big money, then the maybe this will not solve the problem. So this is one, one major issue which I think that MMTers have not dealt with to the extent that is necessary, that if the government has already been taken over, then will it help to transfer the power of money creation to the government? Uh, it would work if it was a democracy as they claim to be, because then the people can, but, but it is not a democracy and it's, it's a plutocracy. And so this is the issue that will it really matter if we turn the power of money creation over to the government? And that's the issue that you have uh, that I have dealt with in the case of Pakistan. That, and it has some bearing with Islamic economics as well, but um, it's too complicated to explain in a few minutes. Okay, okay. Is there anything you could say that just to close out the conversation? Yes, I think um, the um, the only thing I can say is that. Uh, this life is a battle and uh, the philosophy that I learned in America is that winners walk and losers, winners talk and losers walk. And that's the wrong philosophy. It's how you play the game that counts. So, yes, I think when, when I look at this battle that we are, it seems like a hopeless cause. I mean, the forces that are arrayed against us are so humongous that one feels that like giving up. But once you understand that it's not 
whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game that counts. Then I would like to be on the side of the angels, regardless of whether I go down in the battle that comes. So I think that's the spirit that is needed in order to launch a revolution that is very much needed to save humanity from and this planet from destruction. Uh, and uh, so I think that that would be my uh, message. So uh, a lot of my lectures are devoted to trying to build hope and inspire and uh, motivate students that to, to put everything you've got because we have only this one life to live. So might as well use it to the best possible uh, purpose. Wow. Okay. Um, great. Uh, thank you so much for, for giving me your time. Uh, this was extremely interesting. And I've, I mean, you have so many papers and videos. <laughs> um, <laughs> actually, I want to say you have a video of, I believe a full hour lecture video of, of like the first 15 chapters of the MMT textbook. <laughs> um, which is great. So I'll put links to those in the description. And um, you have several other MMT videos as well. I, you yes. gave a you gave a speech in Pakistan. Uh, I'm not sure when it was, but it's interesting. Some of the, the skeptical questions afterwards were yeah. interesting to listen to as well. So uh, I have a full course on MMT. That's uh, I go through the text chapter by chapter, lecture by lecture. So right. if somebody really wants to do, uh, it's it's all it's all public. I have no. I'm not making money from any of this, just uh -huh. uh, putting it out there for anybody who can use it. I will put links to all that in the, the, in the show notes. Um, thank you so much for, for coming on and talking. This has been a real pleasure. Uh, this has been, this is a, a side of, I, I don't know. It was just, it just felt like some very new subjects that I had not thought of before. And um, it, it just gives, I think a broader perspective of the picture that MMT fits into. So thank you so much for your time. It was a real, it was, Thanks it was a really lot nice for talking with you. The interview and giving me the opportunity to present my ideas, unorthodox as they are, and <laughs> for your sympathetic and kind and courteous interlocutions. Well, thank you so much. Um, it was really nice talking with you, and uh, hopefully, maybe sometime our paths will cross again. You're welcome. And it was nice for me as well. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Music for this show is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape-A-Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus, then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all of the final processing in the Reaper Digital Audio Workstation. 
Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn, and the video teasers are created with the online Headliner app. Today is the second part of my two-part conversation with Pakistani PhD economist Assad Zaman. Today, Professor Zaman first talks about what Islamic economics is and how it compares to MMT, and how mainstream economics makes Islamic economics impossible. He then describes why money is not neutral and what the concept of neutrality means. We end by discussing the nature of the necessary revolution in economics, as difficult as it will be, especially in the United States. We fight not because we will win, but because if we are to have a chance at remaining an organized species and society, then there is no other choice. You will find much more in the description of part one, but for now, let's get right back to our conversation. <laughs> 